The Murti Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us in today's teleconference. The topic is hiring issues for F1 and H1 for F1 students and H1B workers. Joining me on today's panel are my esteemed and distinguished colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Kevin Andrews, who's been with the firm approximately 10 plus years, I believe, and Allison Terry, whose sole focus is the non-immigrant visas, H-1Bs, non-immigrants. So you're dealing with those who are on the ground and working on these hot issues on a daily basis. Clearly, the topic is pretty hot. It's a volatile environment with the Trump administration, and a lot of companies are finding that they're getting RFEs, NOIDs, notice of intentions to deny, notice of intentions to revoke, even after approvals have been issued, etc. And so we thought that talking about this issue, explaining how, um, as employers, you can use both F1, OPT, CPT, STEM students in your businesses and companies, as well as dealing with issues when you sponsor H1B workers, with everything that's been happening. I know we were talking the other day about the difference in the statistics, and I feel I'm preaching to the choir because most of you probably know or have a sense of this already. Just three years ago in 2016, the USCIS issued approximately 30 to 40 percent RFEs, 30 to 40 percent of the time we had RFEs issued, and maybe the denial rate was nationally 5 to 6 percent. Uh, whereas today, in 2019, the RFE rate is close to somewhere between 80 to 95 percent, and the national denial rate has increased substantially, almost to about 30 to 40 percent. So, <coughs> sorry, with that, let's have Kevin talk about, let's get started, the differences between what is a classification versus a person's status? Thanks, Sheila. Um, yeah, so I think it's important to make this distinction when we're talking about this because, you know, what we want to make sure uh, employers understand are what are the issues that they need to be aware of when they're onboarding H-1 workers in the current environment. So uh, what we're talking about when we're talking about H-1B status is the request for two different immigration benefits. The classification is about the H-1B job, which relates to the, the job and the terms and conditions of employment that the prospective employer is offering. So, you know, that has nothing to do with the individual's prior history. But the status request, when you're asking for H-1B and extension of status, that does have something to do with the individual worker that your prospective employee that you're trying to onboard that individual's prior history. So it's a possibility that the H-1B petition could be approved because, yes, this onboarding employer has a real, legit, bona fide job with no issues. But if that individual is as qualified as they may be coming from an employer where there were some issues with maintenance of status, um, even things going back years for <clears throat> uh, 
inability to pay uh, the payroll for a, a certain block of time years ago um, or, or benching or things like that. So what we're seeing increasingly is that USCIS is looking further and farther back to, uh, to determine whether they should be granting maintenance of status. And that's having you know, an impact, a direct impact on the employability of uh, onboarded, uh, onboarded H-1 workers. Um, and it's becoming a little bit more disruptive than, than ever before. These th- are things that used to be exceptions and are, are now becoming more uh, the rule as investigations and the level of scrutiny increases. Okay, so basically what you're saying then it sounds like is that whether it's an, a change from H-1B employer to a different H-1B employer or F-1 to an H-1B, that's where the status issue and looking at has the student maintained status, has the H-1B worker been paid correctly, done the job duties at the work location, et cetera, et cetera, to uh, decide whether USCIS will approve the petition with the I-94 card attached to the approval notice or say, no, sorry, we're denying, we're approving the H-1 petition, but we're not approving the extension or change of status. So now the person has to actually travel abroad, obtain the visa, get a fresh I-94, um, I guess, well, not longer a physical I-94, more online, but obtain that status when re-entering the United States. Right, but still having to go through all those additional layer of, of requests and, in, and scrutiny in order to get to that point, whereas, you know, simply not too long ago, again, like a few years ago, submitting the uh, recent approval notice and two recent pay stubs would have been the extent of the scrutiny that USCIS would have applied. Now they're looking even, you know, farther back all the way to the beginning of the approval to make sure that they were working and getting paid. And that's just with the H-1s. With F-1s, we're seeing even you know more complex issues uh, when it comes to maintenance of F-1 status while working. And I think that's you know uh, you know a, a, another major issue this time of year sure. coming out of cap season. Yeah, I know we <laughs> use the term for the title today, hiring issues for F-1s and H-1B workers. But F-1s are really students because whether you're on CPT, OPT or STEM OPT or students, student workers, sure you're working, but it's part of your curricular practical training, optional practical training, or STEM OPT extensions. So with that, what are the different methods and how does that work, Ali? Sure, Sheila. So there are really three types of employment authorization that you're going to be looking at when someone is in F1 student status. So the first of those is curricular practical training, or CPT, like you mentioned, right, which means that the person is still actually in school and attending classes, and the work is tied to the actual educational curriculum. Um, Typically, there's going to be an agreement between the school and the employer that kind of authorizes this work in this arrangement. Um, The second type is optional practical training, or OPT, typically for students who have actually completed their course of study, recent graduates. This is going to be for a year-long time. They're going to get a work authorization document, actual physical EAD. Um, And this actually requires authorization from USCIS, right? You have to file an application to get that EAD. That's a little bit different than CPT. Something else to keep in mind is to make sure that this you know, person is doing a job that's directly related to their field of study. Um, if not, it could come up later and affect the H-1B. And then the last type of employment authorization is STEM OPT. So this is a two-year extension of OPT for individuals who have graduated with science, technology, engineering, or math degrees. Um, and this is this has a couple additional requirements then OPT. And so those additional requirements sometimes cause a little bit of uh, trouble or trip ups when it comes to filing an H-1B cap case. 
Sure, sure. And I know whenever I do consultations, often I find that the EAD is um, the student applies wrong or the, the international student advisor slash designated school official might give not tell them the time frame, the correct amount, not using the correct latest form, the mm -hmm. filing fee, not signing the check, not dating the check, all of the things that you dread. But the problem with the F1 OPT is that there's a very short targeted time window time mm -hmm. frame time window where if you don't apply then you're pretty much out of luck which is really sad and scary because people then when the package is returned people have to deal with it so I let's understand what are the uh, kinds of issues that come <laughs> up kevin yeah uh, and just real quick on along those lines i often tell my clients that are in that predicament that they often have to be more savvy about the curricular practical training program than the curriculum the curriculum itself you know in their mm. uh, how savvy they need to be to make sure that mm. they're navigating it correctly because like you said you can't just rely on on the school to know what's going on right um, or, or the government even to be having uh, uh, giving a reliable uh, you know uh, prediction about whether this benefit is something that you can maintain or not mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I bet you with the Trump administration they would love to eliminate any and all forms of employment authorization um, especially with F1s, especially once they've completed the OPT, the whole idea of the CPT and the, the, the coming, going back to do a CPT after the 12 months OPT F1 or the 12 pl months plus mm -hmm. the 24 months, the three years of STEM, total of STEM. It's, those are the kinds of issues that we're seeing in RFEs and denials where they're like, well, you violated your status because you decided to go back on CPT or you, you know, you're working, you're just doing anything and everything to try to prolong your stay in the United States, which we're having a big problem with. And they're trying to deny H1 extensions. They're trying to deny a lot of things. So there's a lot of moving parts with the whole buy American, hire American executive order. Yeah, and I would say when it comes to F1 students, onboarding F1 students, I think the two major uh, things to look out for are day one CPT, immediate use of CPT, and individuals that are doing STEM OPT at third-party placement. Okay, so uh, real quick about day one CPT, immediate use of CPT. I, I think the big intentional confusion by the government here is that everybody is relying on everybody else to say that it's okay. Um, I, I tell my clients that it's kind of, it reminds me a lot of like the recession from 2008 where there was uh, this bank that lent out all of this cheap credit to these financial institutions that lent it to people to buy houses that eventually they weren't able to afford. And when the government came in, it, the government didn't crack down on themselves. I'm pretty sure the institutions, financial institutions, got a bailout, but the homeowners were the ones that were cracked down upon, even though they followed all the rules, filed all the forms, did everything that the financial institutions told them they were allowed to do. So similarly, what we're seeing is the bank- Except paying their bills on time. Uh, well, okay, but it, it was about uh, uh, lending out the credit. My, my point is, <laughs> my, my, my point is that um, similarly, the, the analog here is that the government gives out this uh, this instead of credit, this work authorization benefit that it, it goes through the, the instead of financial institutions, these academic institutions. Now, these academic institutions, like the financial institutions, forgive me for sounding a little uh, jaded here, but they care. I think they care about money a little bit too. Uh, because they get paid in the form of tuition. And um, I, I think that there are some who have a business model of attracting foreign national students because of a reputation of giving out uh, cheap CPT the way some banks would give out cheap credit uh, 10, 10, 12 years ago. What happens, though, is that when the individual student says, but I followed all the rules, I checked all the boxes, I did everything the academic institution uh, uh, told me to do, 
the government still comes back and says, but you're the one out of status. You're the one who's going to uh, feel the brunt of the consequence mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And uh, na- and right now it seems that the consequence would be this individual would have to leave and apply for a visa, which is what you as employers have to be aware of. But what if uh, the, the policy memo that we're aware of from August of uh, la- last year that uh, says that USCIS would make a finding of unlawful presence retroactive to when the conduct began, uh, w- what if that becomes alive and a real thing, which currently is stayed through a, a court case right now? Is my thank goodness, yeah. Um, thank goodness for that co- lawsuit that people, that universities filed and put this whole thing on hold. Right, but but uh, w- whether that's a, a tranquilizer or a bullet, I think remains to be seen. So so that's something that is a part part of this red flag, you know, to be aware of. Uh, so that's day one CPT. It's kind of something that we have to just kind of work with and, and, and hope for the best, um, prepare for the worst. W- when it comes to st- uh, STEM OPT, um, that's, you know, when individuals are working um, third-party placement STEM OPT. So this is another one that does, just doesn't make sense to me as a, as a common sense point of Looks view. Looks like Ali wants to explain that. Um, oh, what, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say that it's an issue that primarily comes up with IT uh, consulting. Uh, and what USCIS is expecting with the STEM is much more hands-on involvement in uh, the employment compared to initial OPT. Right. So STEM OPT, this actually became a big issue last year, kind of a hot button issue when USCIS just kind of surprise updated its website and essentially said, well, if you're doing STEM OPT at a client site, it it won't meet the requirements and therefore a person's violated their status. Um, The problem here is with STEM OPT is there's a requirement that the employer provide training. And you have to fill out a form I-983, which is a training plan at the beginning. And USCIS has largely taken the stance that, you know, how are you going to provide this training if they're at a client site three states away and you don't have anyone else there? Um, Luckily, USCIS did come out and say, okay, it's not across the board. You know, this training can be proper at a client site, but you still have to have someone actually who is a representative of your company providing this training. Um, so what I was the only reason the USCIS changed their website back was because of that lawsuit that yeah. IT Serve Alliance filed that mm-hmm. required them to backpedal on the day that they had to respond to the lawsuit. Right, and this is kind of indicative, I think, of what they've been doing a lot, which is trying to change regulation and law by just doing sneaky things like updating their website and not telling anyone about it. You know, we kind of just one of our paralegals found it and realized that this was an issue. Um, they didn't announce it. They didn't give it any sort of warning, so everyone was kind of scrambling. Um, we've been able to address it and prove to the government, hey, look, that's you can do this training at a client site and get those cases approved. USCS has acknowledged this. I think what the biggest piece of advice I tend to give to employers about this is to from, you know, have a concrete plan and steps and you know documentation you're giving these employees to provide this training to document that that it did happen and it was proper so that when it comes to maybe you're filing a cap case if USCIS asks asks about it you can answer the question perfect thank you Ali so the next issue that we would like to discuss is the H1B workers and cap subject petitions that are filed So a foreign national who has an approved H-1B petition with the approved change of status, what what Kevin and I just discussed, with the I-94 card attached to the approval notice, will automatically find that their status has changed 
effective from the date of the approval notice, which generally would be October 1st, if that's the start date requested, which is generally the case, and effective. Now, of course, we're seeing a lot of H-1B cap subject petitions that are still pending well past October 1st, in which case I guess it's whenever the case is approved. But if it's approved with the October 1st start date, the person's status changes automatically by law. But in order to continue to maintain the status, the person needs to be working pursuant to the terms and conditions of that H-1B petition approval. What does this mean? This means that if the person is working either doing different job duties, in a different role, in a different work location, what have you, whether it's on the CPT, OPT, or STEM OPT, then you need a transition in order to to be assured that the person is now allowed and considered to be approved to work with the CAP subject petition. And for those with CAP cases that have RFEs on maintenance of status issues, actually requesting the USCIS to withdraw the change of status or even the extension of status, but in most cases change with a CAP subject petition, may actually be worth considering but the foreign national will need to apply then for the visa stamp abroad in his or her home country prior to then being readmitted back on H-1B status. And we're sometimes seeing that even when the employer withdraws or the individual withdraws the request for the change of status, the USCIS still purposefully issues a denial in, a dis- in the decision denying the change or extension of status so that now the person will have may have to explain to the U.S. consular officer abroad why they had failed to maintain status. And what she, about H-1B transfers, Kevin? Uh, well, Sheila, if I okay. could ask you, the um, are, I don't I'm not hearing people particularly having issues with applying for the visa after going, you know, withdrawing the change of status if the H-1 is approved. How about you? Do you do you? Hear yeah. That? So generally at the consulate, I find that the consular officers tend to be fairly flexible if they're concerned either about fraud misrepresentation, obviously, or if they believe that somebody was out of status for more than the 180 days, then they're very closely monitoring because now the person's subject to the three-year or potential 10-year bars. But in most cases where it's a question of few days, weeks, even months below the 180-day mark, even when the person, when the US, when they check off on the box, have you ever violated your status on the DS-160? They, the person says yes and says, I got my you know, decision without the extension of status, whatever, 30 days ago or two months ago, whatever, the consular officers tend not to focus on those questions right now. And we hope that that continues because that makes sense. Right, yeah, and I think a lot of uh, students who went to you know, schools that are known for being magnets for the day one CPT are concerned about that. So I guess as long as they're honest, about their history then you know as of right now that's not seeming to be a, a issue at the consulate so uh, i guess our my perception at least is that uscis seems to be more concerned about the day one cpt stuff than the than the state department so that, that that's why we're kind of uh asking people to consider withdrawing the change of status request one last thing i wanted to ask you about the cap uh cases is um something that comes up very often i get the question well what if i got a new project within the same you know, commuting distance for a cap case, uh, you know, how is that going to work? 
Yeah, uh, this, so it's a new project, new employer, but in the same geographic MSA, Metropolitan Statistical S- uh, Area. Same H-1B employer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was the Google project and now it's the Facebook project, both in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, whether this is considered, you know, does it fall under the Sameo guidance? Is it not a material change? So, Because if yeah. an amendment needs to be filed before October 1, there's, that, that doesn't work, right? Because you can't amend a status that hasn't taken place yet. So is the case... Is the cap cap case salvageable if you have a new project? I, obviously, if it's Google and then Google down the street, that's going to work. That's the Mayo Solutions. But what if it's Google to Facebook down the street? What are the likelihood? The cons- I guess the co- for concern, a lot of cases for both employers and employees is if the uh, FDNS, the Fraud Detection and National Security Agent, or the ICE agent is doing a site visit and comes to the old location, let's say in your example, to the Google site instead of to the new site with whatever, um, they come there and then they find the applic- employee not working there. Then they issue either a notice of intention to revoke or say, where's this person? Our records show that the person was supposed to work at this location. And then the employee's response back is, well, the person is working at that location. But in this example, just to be extra, extra, extra safe, I think when we had this discussion among several of the lawyers at the Murti Law Firm, the response back was, uh, I've actually done it where they've joined before they started to file the H-1 petition amendment in advance because the person did get the I-94 card attached to the approval notice, so there would be an automatic change of status come October 1. And so if you filed the petition amendment showing the old job and showing that now the new job and showing that there was no fraud, that was a genuine change in work locations, it could potentially work. They're, the more conservative and safer approach is to wait to continue to hopefully be able to go to that project, even if it's for a day or two days or a week or two, attach a couple of pay stubs and then file the amendment to change from location client A to client B uh, so that the automatic change of status occurs on October 1st. So then there's no question whether the individual was already counted against the H-1B cap slash quota or not. Yeah, and I think just a couple of takeaways for the for the listeners here about cap cases would be... Um, you know, number one, I, I think it is a little dangerous to try and, you know, if, if the project changes, I'm not sure that that, that would work. Uh, but if you're in a position where you have an RFE, you, you have to try. There's nothing else uh, to do. The other thing I think that uh, Sheila mentioned it earlier, when the change of status is approved, um, as long as uh, come October 1, the petition has not been withdrawn, like you said, that person automatically enters into H-1B status. They may technically fall out of status the very next minute because they're not going to the job, but the critical thing for an H-1 prospective employer trying to onboard this individual is that they've been counted in the lottery to get their full six years, so maybe they have to do an international travel, but they can still uh, be counted in the lottery. Okay, great. So did we talk about the both H-1 cap cases and H-1B transfers, or do we need to touch upon that briefly? Uh, the transfers, real quick, I think the things that onboarding employers need to be aware of is that there's a possibility that previous back wage violations, previous benching violations from prior employers um, could have an actual impact and disrupt this uh, prospective employee's ability to work. Not that your petition will be denied, but that the status portion could be denied requiring international travel, to get a visa, and you know you have to factor that into the calculation when onboarding, and if it's for a client or what, what your flexibility is for getting that person to work, uh, that, that has to be part of the analysis. Um, th- the other thing, just briefly, that often comes up that you have to be aware of is whether or not somebody is coming to you uh, with uh, trying to use the 60-day grace period. Um, if an individual has a facially valid I-94 card and they're terminated or they quit from their previous employer, 
um, they have a 60-day time frame to file an extension or a change of status from the time that they were laid off, not from the time that they get their last paycheck or from their last severance pay, or it's from the time that they stop working. So um, establishing that date with the onboarded uh, pr prospect can be uh, a moving target a little bit. So you want to uh, get get HR, you know, want to get your hands around that to, you know, determine first, is this person been laid off? Do they have a facially valid I-94? When was the actual layoff? So we can start, you know, counting the 60 days to see if it's doable, because if they're coming to you at day 55, knowing an LCA takes seven to 10 days to get certified, you know, it's not going to work. Um, Ali, do you have, uh, it's a little creative with the 60-day grace yeah. period. And so multi-law firm has been quite successful on some cases with getting approvals, mm -hmm. even though technically and legally it's not as crystal clear because it wasn't job termination yeah. if you quit or what. If, mm -hmm. if, if your person was laid off or terminated, then it's clearly there's the 60-day grace period. I think when there's either a denial with a prior employer or the person quits, mm -hmm. I think it's, but, but, so far, we've seen had some success with it at the multi law. Yeah, firm. so this regulation is fairly new, right? So it's it's new as of January 2017. So there's really not that much guidance or kind of test cases out there. To well, the tell Trump us administration doesn't like it. It was literally right. the day before <laughs> Trump started in office. Yeah, it was issued on January. To it was on the last day of Obama's mm -hmm. presidency, a parting gift, and luckily the regulations became final on that particular day. Yes. Talk and about this timing. One, this regulation in particular is very favorable to H-1B holders, um, which we know Trump is not a huge fan of. So the great thing about the 60-day grace period, great and maybe not so great, but I like to think it's good, right? Think positive, is that the government didn't define the word cessation in the regulation. So the regulation says that the 60 days starts upon the cessation of employment, but it doesn't say what that means. Mm -hmm. It doesn't limit it to being laid off or just quitting or whatever. So you kind of have a little room to play there um, to be creative with using the 60-day grace period in different situations. You know, you got a clear-cut situation where, let's say I'm working for employer A and I get laid off and my I-94 doesn't expire for a year. I've clearly got 60 days to file something. It gets a little more gray when if you're working based off of a pending petition and if that petition is denied, but your previous I-94 is still unexpired, can you use the 60-day grace period? There is certainly an argument to be made, and we have made it and made it successfully in at least a couple cases, where INA 214N allows you to work on the receipt and the cessation of your employment actually isn't until the denial. And so you can kind of try and argue that the, the, the 60 days starts upon denial and you get a little creative with the legal language and it's definitely an option. So there are ways to use this regulation if in different scenarios that maybe aren't so clear cut um, from you know just the black and white wording of the, the regulation itself. Thank you, Ali. That's very, very interesting and exciting to know. And I think many, many lawyers, law firms, and employers may not be taking advantage of this mm -hmm. potential legal avenue that exists under the regulations. The next issue that we want to touch upon is, of course, finding a fraud with the prospective employees' cap cases. Uh, Kevin, I know this is like obviously a hot issue. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm seeing this a, a lot. We're seeing a lot of consults um, and people calling in about <clears throat> issues where the employer of the, that filed the lottery case, there was some kind of investigation and then eventually a finding of fraud on uh, the individual's lottery case after it was approved and then USCIS coming back, revoking that petition, 
Now, revocations, usually when USCIS revokes a petition, the revocation is effective from that date moving forward. But there is an exception when the, a petition is revoked because of a finding of fraud or misrepresentation. So this is another example of um, a, pr a previous unrelated unknown employer's conduct or misconduct having a direct con uh, impact on the ability for you to employ an individual. And this one's even greater because it's a longer-term consequence. So just to give an example, and this example kind of fits several fact patterns I've had people call in about lately, is, you know, let's say an individual's H-1B was approved uh, September of 17 with a change of status. And then so automatically on October 1st of 17, they entered into H-1B status and, you know, went to work for the employer. Like Sheila said, automatic entry into H-1B status. But the employer did not have work available for the individual. So the individual, being diligent, decided, oh, I'm going to transfer to another employer. Transfer to another employer, or maybe they traveled, came back in um, after the, uh, a visa w was issued on the new petition. But then subsequently, USCIS conducts an investigation on the first employer and discovers uh, there were some fraudulent documents submitted with the filing. Uh, then they send notice to the employer, the first employer, about uh, their intention to revoke the petition and then eventually revoke the petition. Uh, then the transfer petition uh, employer's petition is going to be denied because now their employee, after that finding of fraud that they had nothing to do with and had no you know control over, um, subsequent to that finding of fraud, now they're not able to onboard this individual. So this is one of those things, and I would say that it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's definitely, this isn't something that routinely comes up, but when it does come up, it has, uh, you know, a huge consequence to the individual um, and, and the company's ability to onboard them. So I don't even know if there's a way to actually, like... <laughs> Fight or challenge it. Well, not, not even that, but, like, um, see it as a thing, bef as, like, look for an indicator, a red flag for this, other than... You know, how is the employee going to even be aware of that? The only thing is like Googling the name of the employer to see if there happens to be some kind of investigation that would. I know in some cases, multi law firm has actually said the only time you can return the number is in the same fiscal year or cap year. So if you do it after one or two years, I'm not sure it's even the, 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 the number can really be taken away. And if it's the fraud of the employer, why is the employee being held liable? And I know we've been successful sometimes, but it's mm -hmm. not as consistent. Um, I know that the well, unfortunately, it is a little bit more consistent lately in that that they're yeah, not, not they're not working. But you're right; we have made that argument in the past. And I think the 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 line of defense here is if you get a revocation like this, the next step would be to try and refile because they have an approval, they have an approved petition. If in the refiling they say no, there's no lottery number here because of the finding of fraud. That's when you file the motion and lay out those arguments and throw in an equitable argument um, and, and see if it works. And like you said, it's been successful in, in years past and maybe even, you know, several months past, but increasingly not as uh, frequently uh, approved. Good point. Okay, so I know we try to be sensitive to be between within 30 to 45 minutes, within 45 minutes, and we probably have a little more than 10 minutes. So we will try and speak fairly fast and go through <laughs> a bunch of topics because we have quite a bit for the next 10 minutes. So H-1B classification. So besides the maintenance of status, USCIS is more frequently issuing RFEs um, on issues like we all are aware of specialty, lack of specialty occupation, lack of right of control between the employer because the person's working at an end client, availability of work. Uh, and the level of scrutiny on these cases, obviously, as we all know, has increased dramatically, especially for ID workers and H-1B dependent employers who are employees working in third-party placements, 
or if there's level one, level two wages, lower wage levels, or the LCA, uh, you know, issues dealing with the LCA. So, Ali and Kevin, can you just give us a little bit of update about why is this happening? When is it happening? What exactly is going on? And what are the strategies or tips that we can consider as employers? Sure. So one big thing and one thing I think has been a really big cause of frustration for a lot of employers that I've experienced is right to control and availability of work, right? They'll submit a petition with all of the documents, all the letters, all the contracts, everything the government wants, and they still get a request for evidence saying, prove to us you have the right to control this employee and prove to us you have available work. Um, but what they're asking for is they're a lot of times acknowledging the document submitted, but saying, oh, but it doesn't go all the way up till the date you requested. So it's kind of assessing, weighing the cost benefits of maybe asking for a shorter duration, maybe asking for what you know 100% is on those contracts to try and avoid that. Um, I tend to believe that this particular uh, occurrence is a result of the February 22nd, 2018 memo that introduced speculative employment. Um, and it kind of emphasizes the inclusion but of But that's a proposed contracts. regulation that was never the law and never became a regulation. This was, was never the imposed. policy from last February about speculative employment. So yeah, but was, you can't change right, your decades is, of laws right. and regulations with policy memos because the government itself admits and courts have held that they are not binding on the agency. Right, but unfortunately the government's using it basically as justification, which I think we touched on this earlier, right, which is they're doing things like this, like policy memos and website updates to change the law without changing the law when they should um and then there's another a, i'm sorry there's yeah. a lawsuit i think going on on this about that, but yeah. it's yeah it's yeah ongoing. there is a whole bunch of law cases mm -hmm. that have actually been filed i think a lot of it server alliance companies and other employers mm -hmm. are filing suits challenging the short-term duration approvals because i don't know nobody knows i don't know what i'm going to do three years from today i don't know <laughs> what i'm going to do tomorrow next two weeks from today let alone yeah. three years and i d guess most of the government officials don't know either what they what what project they're going to work on what they're going to do other than work for the government so it's interesting that this is becoming like a big issue yeah and i think that's one of the arguments it's like well isn't this is an administrative proceeding the standard of proof is more likely than not um you know looking at history industry standard you know those were factors that were in the uscis's guidance up until relatively recently so this does, in effect, and you know, literally represent a departure from previous um, and if uh, they, administration policy. If they're policy. departing, then they, by law, are required <laughs> to issue, violation. right, under the Administrative Procedure Act, they're required to issue regulations, which they conveniently have not done. Clear mm -hmm. violation of the laws. Okay. And, oh, it just, uh, yeah, go ahead. Allie. Yeah, well, and something else, too, kind of related to this, another executive order would be the Buy American, Hire American. And so we're not just facing kind of this increased scrutiny on the right to control front, but also specialty occupation. You know, the government has kind of taken this stance, maybe not explicitly, but what we've seen is a direct correlation between higher wage level cases, meaning, you know, the government supposed this person to be more qualified, which meets that Trump standard, um, higher wage levels meaning higher rate of approval um and it's just kind of you know i think a direct result of by american higher exactly. american mm -hmm. which is again not the law and it's interesting that <laughs> each time an oppressed and changes that people come up with new ways of how to change the law and that is not there's a reason there's the separation of powers with mm -hmm. Congress, the legislature, yeah, the and judiciary was, acting. Was so what are the tips? If I'm an employer, you know what? I've heard, I've seen the problems, I've seen the RFEs, I've seen the noise, I've seen the denials. Please, guys, 
give me solutions, give me answers, give me tips, tell me how we can try to overcome all of these problems. So Ali and Kevin. Sure. So I think one of the big problems that have come up, right, shorter duration. How do you deal with that? What can I submit to avoid getting a shortened H-1B approval? Um, and one of the things that you can do is file with as much of the right documents from day one as possible. And so you want three kind of primary pieces of evidence for each link in your contractual chain. You know, if you've got petitioner, vendor, client, you want to aim for a letter, verification letter from the client or vendor. You want the contract between the parties and the statement of work or purchase order. That's a big ask for a lot of companies. I think people are becoming more willing to provide that because they're seeing denials being issued. Um, but the, the stronger evidence you can get, more of those pieces you have, I think the higher likelihood you have of the case being approved. Something to consider too is statements of work and purchase orders that have a six month duration, you're probably going to be looking at if the case is approved, a six month approval time. Yeah, I think we're seeing that like maybe um, it's like a right. I would say like 60, 40 right now. Like if mm -hmm. you ask for three years, like you'll get it 40 percent of the time and the other 60 percent you're getting the duration limited yeah. to the work order. Sorry. OK, well, I mean, it sounds like we are almost in a crazy, crazy kingdom. It doesn't even feel like this great nation of laws and rules and regulations that we all came to. So while well, we try to wrap up. Um, you know, since the USCI is scrutinizing H-1Bs, F-1 students and H-1B workers, their jobs, their employment history so aggressively, as employers, we each need to also look out for potential red flags when trying to sponsor or bring employees on board. So if I can have Kevin and Ali briefly recap um, Anything? Yeah, just to recap real quick, what we discussed when you're onboarding an F1 student with that that has had work that has work authorization, you're going to want to look for prior use of STEM OPT at a third-party work location, and also immediate use of CPT. Could be an issue, maybe, maybe not, but uh, now you know it's a potential red flag to look for when onboarding. Uh, the next one will be for cap cases. Um, for those who have a lottery case, as, as we mentioned, using the H-1B means count being counted in the lottery. So if it's approved with the change of status um, and, and not withdrawn before October 1, that person automatically enters an H-1B status and can use the remainder of their six years. Uh, but if there's some finding of fraud later on, that's going to have a direct impact on the employability of that individual now, no matter how long ago it was uh, the lottery case was approved. And then finally, H-1 transfers. You're just looking for, it, it's not just two recent pay stubs and an approval notice anymore. Um, it could be looking at the individual's entire maintenance of status since they're, you know, so asking like, was there any times where you didn't work or you worked at a location you're not allowed to um, are, are, are kind of indicators of whether or not the status portion of the petition is going to be approved with, you, with your onboarding uh, petition. And then I guess the, the other thing to look out for is whether or not you have an onboarding individual trying to use the 60-day grace period. And then again, just figuring out what are your time frames based on uh, what Ali uh, had discussed. Yeah, and then in addition to you know everything Kevin discussed about status, you've also got to look at getting the actual petition approved as an H-1B specialty occupation. And it's becoming more and more difficult to do that, and employers should just be aware that USCIS is issuing shorter durations, so you might be dealing with the same stress in another three months instead of three years, as it may have been in the past, and to just try and set yourself up 
for success as best as possible from, you know, day one of the filing to hopefully try and maybe avoid those when you can. Yeah. And, you know, the federal government is issuing three month or six month approval so that instead of just getting the fee twice in six years, they can get it mm-hmm. six times or 12 times. And so uh, as I often say to employers in various talks that I give across the country that don't lose faith, don't lose hope. Uh, hopefully all of these changes in the regulations, the changes in the the policy memos, the guidance, all of this stuff that's happening is people, employers, individuals, companies, art, universities are all challenging the government. On behalf of Kevin Andrews, Allison Terry, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we look forward to continuing to help you, and we thank you for joining us in today's teleconference. Have a wonderful rest of the afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.